0: Uh, this is Dan Gore, and you're watching the TV Writer Podcast.
1: Hosted by Gray Jones, the TV Writer Podcast is brought to you by Script Magazine and ScriptMag.com, the leading source for scriptwriting information in print and on the web, and by Final Draft Scriptwriting Software, the entertainment industry standard for scriptwriting worldwide. My name is Gray Jones, and I want to welcome you to the TV Writer Podcast, partner of Script Magazine, episode 31, for Monday, August 15th, 2011. Well, today I'm so excited to bring you an interview with producer-writer Dan Gore, who is a co-executive producer on Parks and Rec. Uh, you're going to absolutely love his interview. It's another very long one, but it's chock full of great tips. Especially when we get into Parks and Rec, he, he really goes into the process of writing the show and also gives lots of great tips about what makes a pilot work or what doesn't and how to break in. So you are going to love this interview. As it is a long one, I'll go right through our announcements very quickly. One of them is definitely check out the tvwriterpodcast.com site. For tons of back episodes. There's 31 episodes now, lots of great content. There's some helpful resource links. There's a TV writer Twitter database with over 800 writers on it. And there's also a store with a new section um, on DSLR. If you're interested in shooting your own webisodes or shooting your own short film as a way of getting getting noticed, you can support the podcast By buying your gear through the site. So check out those ways of supporting us. And you can always support with donations. Big, big help. Um, Don't forget the TV Writer Podcast Summer Contest. You can get details about the contest at the site. And there's still lots of amazing prizes to win. And easy ways to do it. But there's only two weeks left in the contest. So uh, check it out fast. And make sure you go to the TV Writer Chat on Sunday nights. 6.30 p.m. Pacific, 9.30 p.m. Eastern. That's where we release the new challenges for the contest. And there's also lots of fun as we connect with other people interested in TV writing. Uh, You can get the list of topics at tvwriterchat.com. It's a a great, great time. But on to my interview with Dan Gore. Enjoy. This is great, and I'm here with producer-writer Dan Gore. How are you doing, Dan? Great. Thank you so much. I, I'm really pleased you could be with us today. And uh, it's actually kind of interesting because you're a Harvard grad and I just talked to a Harvard grad last week and it, it seems like uh, things kind of go in pairs uh, um, on the podcast. Uh, who is, who, is the, who is the other Harvard grad? Uh, that was Ari po- Posner. He uh, writes for Call Me Fitz, uh, wrote for Reba, um, popular a couple. Couple others.
0: I don't personally know him, but he sounds like a good guy.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, he has in, interesting, interesting story was that uh, he was roommates with um, Ryan Murphy way before either of them actually hit Hollywood. Huh. Uh, so anyway,
0: there are some crazy roommate pairings.
1: Oh, I know, I know.
0: Al Gore and Tommy Lee. Oh, Tommy yeah. Lee Jones, yeah, yeah, and Al Gore were roommates. I
1: think. Really. Mm-hmm. Wow! Like yeah, the show, the showrunner of V, uh, Scott Rosenbaum, was roommates with the showrunner of Human Target, Matt Miller, back in the '90s. Um, and of course, all of them went to film school together at, at USC. Um, so it's it it's a uh, but I mean I guess it's pretty natural. I know in my job, um, most of the jobs that I get are through word of mouth. People that I know, even from like that, I was roommates with in in university. They're looking still looking out for me and. And helping, helping me to find gigs.
0: No, and I think that's actually the case in many industries, not just uh, show business.
1: Yeah. Cool. Well, I guess we should uh, start talking about that stuff. Uh, you grew up in, uh, and, I'm sorry, I don't even know how to say it, Bethesda?
0: Yeah, Bethesda, Maryland, right outside mm-hmm. of Washington, D.C. It's where um, the National Institutes of Health are. So oh, I mean, okay. I mean, article like about NIH or about a scientific discovery, it's usually filed from Bethesda, Maryland. Oh, okay. It's also
1: where... Did you ever see um, that Kevin Kline movie, Soap? No, I didn't. I love Kevin Kline, though.
0: There was a... They they set the National Sex Change Clinic in Bethesda, Maryland.
1: (laughs) Oh, really?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I grew up right next to the NIH, Mm -hmm. the National Institutes of Health, and my dad was a scientist who worked there. Like you could walk out of my door and look to the left and it, and you'd see it. It's also where Bethesda Navy Medical is, mm-hmm. which is where the president gets his checkups and also now where soldiers coming back to the states get fixed up. It's like a very medical scientific community.
1: Now, and now tell me, so you went to high school in Brooklyn.
0: So I went to school in Bethesda, Maryland until, so the story starts before this, which is that my older brother is an incredibly talented pianist. Mm-hmm. And he started playing the piano when he was nine. And by within a year, he was like winning every piano competition in the state of Maryland. And he basically moved to New York when he was 14. And he started going to Juilliard. Wow! And in the pre-college division, it's like once a week. So he needed a school to go to. And he went to this amazing school called St. Anne's, mm-hmm. no religious affiliation, it was just a school that had no grades, very liberal uh, in terms of its education policies and really interesting place. And then when he graduated, the the family he lived with, said if your brother wants to go he can go really yeah so i moved up and i lived in a brownstone in brooklyn i basically lived on the fourth floor of this brownstone and there were three rules it was was an unbelievable experience for a 16 year old Uh Were three rules it was like tell us i lived with the assistant headmaster of the school no and she was like the rules are tell us if you have Somebody else come for dinner. Uh Tell us if you're gonna miss dinner, and tell us if you're sleeping somewhere else.
1: No. Oh my goodness! And you're in a big city, living living there on your own for the first time.
0: Yes. And my brother lived, you know, on the Upper West Side. He's pretty close by, but it was just an ideal. And it's in this old, beautiful building in downtown Brooklyn. It's very arts oriented, arts focused. Like there's a black box theater, and people write plays, and there are no grades, and no class meets more than four times a week. Really? So, like, my history class my senior year was the Trojan War, and you read like the Iliad and the Odyssey, and I mean, it was amazing. It was an amazing place at
1: school. Wow, wow, that that sounds like a great experience. And and you know, it's it's funny. I don't know, I don't know about you, but um, I I can pinpoint the the points in my past where there was somebody who set me on the direction I'm on now. There was a eighth grade English teacher who was like, literally, if you've seen Dead Poet Society. He was uh-huh. the Robin Williams character. Funny,
0: yes. That person for me was in third grade. I had a, we had a, in our English class, we did a lot of creative writing. Mm-hmm. And, or maybe it was fifth grade, sorry, fifth grade. And I wrote so many stories, all of them about the Holocaust. Uh-huh. That was all I could write about. I never had endings to them. It was always like a little boy getting onto a freight train. They were like the most devastating And depressing stories. Oh no! And I also, and I all I read about was the Holocaust. Uh And I won like an award, some stupid ribbon, and it was for a little poem called "Memories," and it was about how good memories are like flurries that do not stick, Uh but sad memories are like snow that accumulates. Uh huh. I I mean, you would think I was a really depressed kid, which I was not. Uh But somehow I had like tapped into this vein of super, and now I'm obviously. a comedy writer but like Uh all I could write about was the most depressing stuff in seventh grade I wrote a uh, we had to do a short short story compilation and mine was called Dodecahedron which is a 12 sided object (laughs) and I wrote this thing about a jury condemning a man to death called Dodecahedron and it was like 12 angry men Dodecahedron sit in judgment of one man Dodecahedron so that being said, I always, uh, the thing that I think actually set me on this path was I used to make videos with my brother. Mm-hmm. And we would do, they were comedy videos. We got a video camera. My dad and mom sort of as a hobby, they wrote children's non-fictions, mm-hmm. non-fiction non-fiction mm-hmm. books like about insects that you might see in the backyard called Backyard Insects and another one on shadows. And they were like, we're going to buy a video camera and make movies of these books. Uh-huh. But then they bought the video camera and that wasn't easy to do in 1987 or whenever it
2: was.
0: Mm-hmm. So my brother and I just started making these videos and developed a stable of characters there was like a televangelist named Monty Underwearhead that came up a lot yeah so that's that i think that's probably for what i do now that would be more the pinpoint of where it started
1: well that that is actually quite interesting that explains a lot because i know you went to harvard for biochemistry and yeah. it doesn't seem like a um <laughs> like a, a natural mix with uh, you said you did a lot of improv comedy and theater at the same time and yeah. biochemistry, I I don't know how much that would inspire the improv and the theater. <laughs> yeah,
0: I I was doing a ton of jokes about the Krebs cycle.
1: <laughs> no,
0: I was um they were separate pursuits. The thing that the great the amazing thing about college is that you can do like your serious work and then you can have extracurriculars. And like the greatest disappointment about the rest of life is that you have to have a job uh-huh. and then no extracurriculars that are as serious as they were in college. And so then you end up choosing your extracurriculars, your job, if you're really lucky, like I got to end up doing comedy, Yeah. but there is something so like unbelievable about having the balance of like learning all this stuff. I, I must sound like such a dork. I know I sound like a dork, but still it's true. It's like you get to learn stuff, you get to socialize with all your friends and you get to like do fun things like theater or improv or whatever.
1: Wow. Yeah. Oh, I remember that too.
0: But it's also the great lie of our generation. Cause it's like your parents told you, you could do anything and then
1: uh-huh.
0: you can do anything until a certain point. And then it's like, you have to do one thing. Yeah. And I think for some people it's like really hard, you know, Yeah. to choose that thing. But, um, yeah, I did, I did biochemistry. I did a lot of molecular biology and biochemistry growing up because I mean, not like serious stuff, but that my summer internships would be working in a lab mm-hmm. because the lab was two blocks away. So I think that made me interested in it.
1: And so, you actually enrolled in med school as well. Um, now, yeah. when when you enrolled, did you already think at that point that you, you were leaning towards the, the extracurriculars? Yeah.
0: Have you ever heard of a guy named
1: Jonathan Miller? He's a
0: British actor.
1: Rings a bell. Rings a bell.
0: I found out about this guy and I was like, oh, I want to be exactly like this guy. He was in the footlights, the Cambridge footlights, and then he did Beyond the Fringe with Dudley Moore. Mm-hmm. And so, he was like this... Unbelievable comedy actor, but then he became a doctor or he became a doctor and then he became an actor. I don't know which one. Mm -hmm. And he went to like med school with Oliver Sacks. I mean, he was like this hardcore guy who got to do it, but got to do all of it. And I was like, maybe I'll be a doctor who's also doing acting. (laughs) And so that's why I wanted to go to, I was going to go to Columbia med school and I was going to try and I took, I deferred for a year and then I, I traveled for a year. And, um, when I got back,
1: now, uh, now, tell me about, you You got a travel grant for that? Like, yeah. What is that?
0: <laughs> it was crazy. It was awesome. It was this grant, which was like you, it was just enough money to travel basically for a year. And the only stipulation was you had to write a five-page paper halfway through the year. No. Yes.
1: Is this thing still exist? I'm sure lots of people would love to, <laughs>
0: to get that. Yeah. It was a Harvard thing. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, but yeah, it's unbelievable. It was like, I went to, I spent half a year in England. Wow. First I took clown classes from this French clown named Philippe Gaulier, who's like a total schmuck, but one of the funniest people I've ever met. He did a thing where you had to stand in a circle and he would count to ten. And if you could make it to ten without laughing, he would like, he would give you, you know, some prize or whatever. Wow. And no one made it. He could just, he was just this little man with suspenders and giant teeth and giant glasses who was hilarious. And he would make fun of people mercilessly. Uh huh. But like, like there was this, well, it's a mean story, but like there was this, uh, this uh, there was this woman who was like from the Black Forest in Germany. And mm-hmm. She kind of looked like a forest witch. <laughs> but she always in these improvisations would play a uh, beautiful princess. Uh-huh. And then afterwards this schmuck would say like, uh, who here thinks that she is beautiful and who here thinks she is a total witch? Oh no. And we'd be like, wow, uh, she's very beautiful. But he ended up getting her to play the part of the witch, and in so doing, made her like ten times better. It was bizarre. Uh huh. She became much more attractive too, because instead of like putting on airs, I don't know, I think this story makes everyone involved sound terrible. But so I quit the school because this guy was such an unbelievable jerk. Wow. And then I worked for like a barrister on a murder trial, which was insane. And then I just traveled around the world. So I went Japan, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore, Malaysia, Thailand, Australia, and then I took the Trans-Siberian from Beijing to Moscow. Wow. That was like uh, just an amazing trip. At one point, the train hit a herd of cows. No. And so we were delayed. And the provodnista, who's like the conductor, came back and said, In dining car, there's fresh meat. <laughs> oh, no. I, mean, I think she was joking, but we had no idea. It was, uh-huh. a, it was just an insane trip. Wow. And then when I came back I had like four weeks basically, four or five weeks before med school started, and my one of my best friends from college was this guy Charlie Grandy, who's now a writer at the office. And he and I had done a ton of improv. I didn't do the lampoon, which a lot of Harvard comedy guys did. And so he was he had been on the Lampoon when we were thinking of applying to Saturday Night Live and we were putting together what was history's worst SNL application, just like so out of touch like we had, it was 1998 and we had a Free to Be You and Me parody. Free to Be You and Me was like a 70s children's program. Mm-hmm. It was like, we could, we were 20 years off in terms of how timely we were being. He uh-huh. we found out about The Daily Show and we applied and two weeks later we got hired as writers.
1: Now, so what, like how did, how did you get that gig specifically? Like like what samples did you send in and and what, like, because it, it seems like you really didn't have any experience in terms of writing a TV show, so...
0: Exactly. I don't know what the application process is like now, but in 1998, The Daily Show didn't require agented submissions, which was a big thing. So, you know, we were able to actually send something in. We basically called up the head writer and his assistant sent us the necessary materials for an application packet. Mm -hmm. All of these late night shows have different sort of applications. And again... This was in 1998, so I'm sure it's different. But it was actually, it's a very sensible application. Mm-hmm. What they do is they would give you five headlines, five news stories, and they gave us the AP stories, the, the wire stories that they had given their, their writers. So it would literally be the AP newswire story of, you know, I remember there was a lot of World Cup stuff. Mm-hmm. And what we would do is that they said, they give you a basic format, which was at the time on The Daily Show, the format was you would do a silly, Tyron graphic of the story. Usually it's a pun. not funny example is like they coined Indecision 96. Mm -hmm. So that would come up. So you would do one of those. Or like one was about NASA and it was called Yes, NASA. It was like a play on Yes, NASA. Mm -hmm. And then there was something called a kicker, which is like a one-liner. It's like not, it doesn't have a setup even. It would just be like a really quick one liner. Mm-hmm. And then you would do a serious setup that would explain the story with a small punchline at the end. And then there would be four to 10 jokes. Mm-hmm. And you didn't have to do the setup for the jokes because you'd done the setup in the setup to the story. Sorry. I don't know if this is too much detail, but so basically we did that. We did, you handed in about five pages of jokes. Mm-hmm. They called us in and they said like, we like your stuff. We just want to make sure it wasn't a fluke. And they gave us another packet of materials that was on a Monday, and then they said, hand this in on Friday. So, we handed it in on Friday morning, and they had invited us to stay and watch the show, mm-hmm. and so we, we handed it in on Friday around noon, actually, and then we went out to lunch. We were super nervous. We came back after lunch, and they said, would you guys like to work here? Wow. And I was like, we said yes, and I said, is this a firm offer? And they said yes, and I was like, can I call med school and tell them I'm not going to go? <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: so I blew off med school, and we we started working at the Daily Show a few weeks later. I think our first day at the Daily Show was the day that Bill Clinton apologized for the Monica Lewinsky scandal.
1: Oh my goodness!
0: So it was like a really meaty time to be writing news parody jokes. Wow! And when we started, it was Craig Kilborn was the host for the last. We were there for the last three months of Craig Kilborn, mm-hmm. and then the first two and a half years of John.
1: Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow, so what a neat story and uh and so you were there for three years yeah,
0: we were there for the two thousand election
1: mm-hmm.
0: and then we left after the two thousand election
1: yeah so uh, that I mean that must have been a great run uh holy uh great practice for um what you would do later on but t- tell me a little bit about so you were you were writing with a writing partner now
0: right we were hired as writing partners, but the thing about the, the it, it was an unusual. It's not like a typical writing partner situation because, especially with one-liners, at least the way both Charlie and I worked, we would really sort of just, it meant we would, we would, every day you'd get three or, you'd be assigned three or four stories. Mm-hmm. Each team, it was all teams. And so, in, either we would split them up and I would take two stories and he'd take two stories or we'd each take a pass at all four stories. But it wasn't like we were writing we weren't spitballing back and forth that much. It wasn't like writing a script with somebody where you're like, oh, what if this character says this? I mean, occasionally you might say, hey, I have a good setup. Do you have a punchline? Or, hey, I have a punchline. I need to help with a setup. But it was more like we were writing individually.
1: Mm. And so ap- after the uh, Daily Show experience, you decided to split as a as a team. Because, I mean, I guess yeah. then you, you hadn't really worked as a writing team at that point.
0: We had done a few things outside of it as a team. We had Mm -hmm. come close to selling a book proposal slash movie proposal for that was like making fun of the dot com era. Mm -hmm. But yeah, we decided to go our separate ways, which wasn't easy. I mean, it was in a lot of ways it was like break. It was like a romantic breakup, like when you break up with a writing partner. I mean, Charlie and I spent every waking minute together, basically. Wow. The Daily Show started at like eight a.m. We shared an office. We ate lunch together. Often we would get dinner together and we had the exact same vacation schedule. So we would go on vacations together. Wow. So just after three years of that intensity, we had sort of overdosed on each other. I mean, subsequently we're still best friends. I was the best man at his wedding. He was in my wedding. Like, you know, he would have been the best man at my wedding if my brother didn't exist, you know, mm-hmm. but, but the actual breakup was like, it was like a romantic breakup. It's like, it's really difficult. It's like writing partnerships like a marriage in so many ways.
1: So moving on, you then wrote for Carson Daly. Um and you were yeah. there for a year? Yeah, about a year.
0: So when we left we had written I had written we, we counted we basically figured out that we'd each written about five thousand jokes. We were kind of burned out and we decided to move on and we split up as writing partners and I decided like I have to stay in New York. Now I live in LA and it's just crazy to me that I had limited myself for no good reason, sort of snobbily saying I'm gonna stay in New York. Also the first time i had applied for a job, I had completely lucked out and gotten a job within two weeks.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, so I had a very unrealistic outlook on how difficult it was to get a comedy writing job. Mm. I mean, I could, I could definitely pay lip service to it, but in my experience, it had not been that difficult. There was a lot of luck involved, though. Mm-hmm. The very fact that there was an opening and they were looking and were willing to consider two people without an agent was incredibly lucky i mean we wrote the packet and we we must have done a decent job but the like the opening itself was incredibly lucky Mm. so then i i left but i was determined to stay in new york and the only places in new york were letterman who either didn't have an opening or i had heard it's not the always the best place to work but i I don't think i was picky i think that they must not have had an opening Mm -hmm. where i applied and didn't get it snl that year, SNL took somebody for weekend update. They took Charlie for weekend update. I didn't want to do more news parody jokes. Mm. They didn't, they took uh, Max Brooks, Mel Brooks' son for sketch writing. He just did uh, World War Z or something. He's super successful, but mm. they didn't take anybody else. Conan didn't have any openings. And I had heard that this guy, Carson Daly, who was, you know, on MTV was starting a late night show. When I applied, I misspelled his name in the application. Oh no. And he pointed that out. He thought it was hilarious. And he was like, I love that you don't know anything about me or my, or music. Cause like I'm not a pop music guy. Uh huh. And so I worked there and it was, it was interesting. In a lot of ways, the, the, like most positive aspects about it were I was at a show from the very start. And so I met a tremendous number of people at NBC that I would never have met before. Like, hmm. you know, I had, that I had to deal with but it was a show that didn't have an identity at the time. Now it's a show where he talks to musicians and and actors and stuff in a very intimate one-on-one setting, which I think he's great at doing. But at the time we were trying to be Letterman for a little bit and Conan for a little bit and it was it was a tough place for me to work. I mean, I just wasn't it wasn't a good match, you know.
1: I I can relate when uh I mean, I've, I've worked for a number of networks that had a really good handle on what they wanted. I've worked for other other networks that it seems like they can't make a single decision, and it is so tough.
0: Yeah, it's so tough. It's really tough. And, like, you know, it's no one's fault to a certain extent. The, the point is, I decided I was going to leave there. I applied to law schools. Mm. I I really, I was like a soul-defining moment. I said to my wife, I was engaged to her at the time, I, I don't want to do entertainment just to do entertainment. I want to be doing something in entertainment that is that I value, that I'm proud of. Mm. And so I kind of gave myself a year. I got into law school and I deferred for a year and I gave myself a year I had a deal with my wife. And the the deal was if I either produce something I'm proud of, it doesn't have to get made. It doesn't have to be purchased. It just has to be something I'm proud of, like a movie or a pilot. Or if I get a job that I'm proud of, I'll stay in entertainment. And I was pretty young. I mean, I, I got hired at the Daily Show at 23. So I was just 26. Wow. So, I mean, some of these things... I don't know that I'd have that same luxury now. I'm 36 mm-hmm. and I have a family and I have a job I love. And if I couldn't get another job I loved, I might take a job I didn't love. I mean, I'm not in any way condemning people. I, I think that circumstances are different for everyone. But at that point I was young and I had had a job for three years. I could take a year to try and find something. And my wife was working. And like um, two months before the backstory is that Conan had had an opening and I had applied but they are notoriously slow about hiring people. Mm -hmm. I gave my notice after I had this conversation with my wife about how I was going to give myself a year. I gave notice on a Friday and on that Monday I got a call from Conan's people saying that they wanted me to come in for an interview. Wow. It was just like incredible timing. Wow. something like three weeks later I found out I got hired and I started two months after that.
1: Wow. And now you were there for five years, so that must've been a good experience I'm guessing.
0: Yeah, it was really in so many ways a dream job. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just, I absolutely loved working there. I love the writing staff. Conan is the funniest person that I've ever been around. I mean, he's like a standard deviation funnier than anyone else. And <laughs> being, being in a room with him, was, it was like a job benefit. Yeah. You know, I mean, really, it's like, you'd be like, yeah, the salary is pretty good. The healthcare is good. And I, Conan came into the room yesterday.
1: <laughs> wow.
0: And this was at the late night show. And it was, I started the day after the 10th anniversary show. So the 10th anniversary show was on a Friday and I started on that Monday. Wow. And I was a sketch writer and it it was an incredible experience. I mean, it it takes a while to learn how to do it. Mike Sweeney is the head writer there. He's a fantastic guy there. Uh, They've assembled an incredibly nice and incredibly talented, funny writing staff. All of whom are like six feet two or above.
1: (laughs) And and Cohen is pretty tall too.
0: Conan's tall. I'm 6'2, six, 6'3, six, and I was the, I'd say, fourth tallest. Wow. Yeah. There's a guy named Brian Stack, who's one of the funniest human beings on earth. He's uh, like a noted Chicago improviser. He's like 6'4. Wow. Sweeney's super tall. Anyway, I don't know why we're talking about people like, <laughs> there are also two short writers. Yeah. Just in case anyone wants to sue in for discrimination.
1: <laughs> okay. So, so, I mean, it's, it's hard to bubble down five years, and I know a lot of that is just, you're gradually, gradually absorbing, but if you were to tell me maybe uh, one or two tidbits of, of, of things that you learned through that time, what would they be?
0: Uh, that's interesting. I mean, some things are like just, truisms, comedy truisms that are going to sound like that's what you learned, but things like <laughs> blood isn't funny. Although I, too much blood can be funny, uh-huh. but like if you're in a, doing a comedy sketch and it looks like the person got hurt, uh-huh. it's not. I mean, if the, if the bit is that Conan shoots Max with a gun and then you shoot him 400 times, then that's obviously funny. Mm-hmm. I think Conan gets a lot of guff about over things up, mm-hmm. but I think that If the importance of the setup is critical to Conan, you know, he tells you what he's going to do, he does it, and then he tells you what he did. Uh And I think that there's something about that that's that's really funny. I've learned a lot about producing, because the writers on Conan get to produce and direct the bits that they do. Mm -hmm. So you learn to really appreciate, you know, the departments, Conan's departments, i.e. the prop department, the costume department were so incredible. So you really learned, I learned the value of each of these departments and how much comedy could be, or story really, could come from these external, these things that are external to the script or only alluded to in the script. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite places to hang out at Conan was in the props room. These guys are incredible. They make or contract to make anything you can dream of. Like I had a character who was called Bulimic Trojan Horse. Uh-huh. And it was like a wooden Trojan horse that you could lift the leg up and then its mouth would open, a stream of soldiers would come out of its mouth. No. I did a thing which was called um, was the skeleton show. We did a repeat of the show, and we used the the all of the audio, but we restaged the show using skeletons, like um you know med school skeletons, like plastic skeletons, the big ones, the full size ones. Uh huh. And everyone did it. We did it. We puppeteered it ourselves. And all the departments participated, and we did it sort of like on the sly to to lower the budget. We did it in a week, and it was incredible. It was just an incredible experience. Wow. Later this last year, I had my own pilot, and one of my favorite aspects of the pilot was talking to each of these departments and watching as they contributed and really made everything better. Mm. uh, That's the thing that Greg Daniels, Greg Daniels is the co-creator of Parks and Rec, Mm. and One thing, and he directed one of my episodes on Parks and Rec, this episode called The Hunting Trip. Like Watching him deal with each department was so interesting. I think he does a really smart thing as producer. When he knows what he wants and when he thinks that that's definitely the best solution, he's very clear about that. But he also appreciates that he's working with very intelligent people who have great imaginations and sense of humor on their own. Mm. So he often would encourage each department to present options and to sort of have fun with it and to come up with their own thing and then it really elevates it you know
1: mhm very very cool so yeah um, so we we're, we're already talking about parks and rec but um so between that uh you you finally made the move to LA yes for i did that for parks and rec mm mm-hmm. mhm and so you so you got the gig on parks and rec and because of that you you moved to LA. to LA yeah and you did a little bit of work on the office yes
0: so i got hired on parks and rec Before it was Parks and Rec and before it was Amy Poehler, it was still untitled Daniel Shore, you know, comic or untitled office spinoff or whatever. Mm -hmm. And we had a start date and like, I quit my job. My wife quit her job. She was working. She's a lawyer. She was working at a hedge fund. We sold our apartment in Brooklyn and we were about to move out here. And then they hired Amy, which is amazing and great for the show. Uh And she was pregnant and she couldn't do it. She couldn't start. Oh my. So they had to push the start date back. We went from 13 episodes to six episodes. Oh my. Which was like financial security to financial scary, you know? Uh-huh. And like, on the one hand and on the other hand, it's like, oh, well now the show has so much better chance of surviving because it has, like, we have one of the most talented actor comedians ever. You know, mm-hmm. she's great. So yeah. like, I was very happy, but it was difficult, also it was difficult to tell your, your wife who's a lawyer at a hedge fund. So think of like a secure job as you can have. Uh-huh. So I worked at the office for a few months sort of as a consultant while we were waiting for Parks and Rec to start. And that was actually the best possible case scenario. It was like an apprenticeship.
2: Wow. You know,
0: I, I started working there. I didn't write a script because I, was, I wasn't there long enough. But I was in on every aspect of breaking a story, pitching jokes on a story, sitting in a room rewrite, doing individual blitzes where like people will go out and write talking heads or rewrite a scene. Mm-hmm. And working with some of their amazing writers like Lee Stignitsky and Gene Eisenberg who are great and, uh, you know, all sorts, Aaron Schur, all of these very talented writers. And it was a very low stakes environment because it wasn't my real job. Mm. I mean, I obviously wanted to make a great impression on them, but I was uh, just in this consultant role and I, and Mindy Kaling was there. I mean, it was great.
1: Wow. Wow. That, I mean, what a stroke of luck.
0: Yes, it was such a struggle sort of, and then it gave me such a leg up in a sense not that it's competition but it's such a leg up on where I would have been when Parks and Rec started because I really understood the voice of Greg and Mike mm-hmm. and I understood because they you know the office was really informing it and I also understood sort of the documentary style much better and the dynamics of a room because working on a sitcom the room is I mean a writers a comedy writers room is a comedy writers room to a certain extent mm-hmm. but there are differences in a late night room versus you know, a story room, and I learned a lot about story, and I sort of learned how people talked about story. It was great. It was just like the best case scenario.
1: Wow, wow, very cool. So now we get to Parks and Rec, and um, and you are are now a co-executive producer. Did, did you start as a co-executive producer?
0: No, I started as an executive story editor. Mm-hmm. It goes like staff writer, story editor, co-executive story. I mean, executive story editor co-producer, producer, supervising producer, executive producer. Those are like the steps.
1: Hmm. So tell me a, a little bit about The Room. I, I mean, this is, I, I guess, kind of the, in terms of the traditional, or not that it's a traditional sitcom, but um, in terms of, of a, a full story sitcom, this is kind of your first complete experience, um, right? Because yeah. a lot of the other stuff, I mean, for, for the daily shows and stuff, you're writing a lot of the same types of jokes and situations, but not necessarily in the same format. So so talk right. about um, being in the room, and you'd had a bit of practice with The Office, um, but but now writing right. for this format.
0: Well, so the process on a show like this is, and we're at the very beginning of season four right now. So what's happened so far this season is actually fairly typical. The writers come back first, and you spend a lot of the early weeks sitting around, breaking, trying to come up with arcs and very general story ideas you might go off in small groups or on your own and pitch just sort of one-off stories, comedy stories, and you do a lot of talking about arcs. So like on our show, I don't know if you are with our show, but Amy Poehler plays Leslie Knope. She works at a Parks and Recreation Department. She's the deputy director. And the season finale of last year left with a kind of cliffhanger, which was she's currently secretly dating a guy at work. They're not allowed to date because he's her supervisor, Uh but they've decided to sneak around and date anyway. And a group of Prominent local businessmen have come to her and said, "We'd like you to run for office." Wow. But are there any scandals that we should know about?
2: <laughs>
0: and she looks at her boyfriend and she goes, "Nope, nothing to nothing. You need to know about." And so the Clippinger is sort of like, "What's going to happen with her? And is she going to run?" It seems like yes. The uh-huh. Clippinger sort of ends it with a positive, but maybe not. And then, is she going to? What's going to happen with Ben? We don't know. She she likes this guy, but she said, "You know, so whatever." So. A lot of the early part of the year is pitching out what happens. What should happen? Should she run? Should she not run? If she runs, should she win? Uh, I don't know. Let's wait. And we can decide on that later. Uh-huh. Should she break up with the guy? Should he break up with her? Should they keep going out? Should they sneak around? Can we just pretend like the cliffhanger didn't happen? Like You know, every option, you kind of go down these pathways. And then there were other cliffhangers, so you're doing that for all of the characters. Wow. we set up that one of the characters, this guy played by Aziz Ansari, was quitting to go work at this ridiculous company called Entertainment Seven Twenty with his boy John Ralphio, the premier multi platform entertainment company in all of Pawnee, Indiana. Which and it doesn't do anything. It's like the only thing it's ever done is a funeral for a miniature horse. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, what happens with that? How do we let people know right off the bat that Aziz is still on the show? Because in a way, we realized after the fact that like, it kind of looked like he might be leading the show at the finale because we have him quitting the office, you know? Mm-hmm. So we worked on those things. And then also pitching individual story ideas. So, for instance, okay, when we did the season one DVD commentaries,
2: mm-hmm.
0: Nick Offerman said to me, you know, I'd love to do an episode where Ron Swanson shaves his head. Uh-huh. And that night I went home and I just had this epiphany. I was like, "Oh, Ron Swanson gets shot in the head with a shotgun." Uh huh. And so then the next year, when we were pitching out stories, I pitched out that was a one-off. It was not in any arc. I was just like, "Ron Swanson gets shot on a hunting trip in the head," and that's like a lucky example because for every one you pitch, there are ten that that, that make it. You know, there are ten that don't make it. Mm-hmm. So that's what the early part of the year is like. Then you start to break specific stories. You've decided on what your arcs are. And you break specific stories. Now on a show like Parks and Rec with the office, there's usually a cover story. Mm-hmm. So the cover story on the office might be something like, this is the day that taxes need to be filed. So all of our accounts need to be closed. Mm. So everyone close your accounts. It's like a boring story, but it's the reason that the cameras are there,
2: yeah. you know,
0: or this is the day of the big sales competition. And then there's an emotional story. So, you know, the emotional story is this is the first time that character A tells character B that he loves her.
2: Mm.
0: So you're breaking both stories and you want to make sure that there's comedy in both stories, you know, or that there's comedy in at least one of the stories to counterbalance the lack of comedy in the other story. I find personally that the best way to break stories is to sort of come up with the act breaks first.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: There are other people who don't work that way who are who work very effectively by just sort of moving forward inch by inch and figuring out funny directions for it to go in. But I, I really like having kind of signposts. Mm. And I find that when you come up with great act breaks, the story fills in. So like with the hunting trip, the act one act break was Ron got shot in the head. Mm. That's a great act break. You know, it's like a, it's a big act break. And then the act two act break was Leslie says that she did it, even though she didn't, Mm. which was another big one. And it was and the comedy act break was that Donna, who's one of our characters. When Ron got shot in the head, Donna's Mercedes, she loves nothing life more than her Mercedes SUV, mm-hmm. also got shot. So Leslie says, Ron, I shot you. And then Donna goes, you shot my Mercedes! And like jumps out of her chair and knocks her over. <laughs> so like, and then you kind of hang the story in between mm-hmm. to a certain extent. So we break the story, and that involves all of us sitting around in the room, pitching ideas, talking it out, Writing a card when we have a beat or a scene that we think belongs. The writer's assistants are taking notes on jokes that are being pitched. We card it, so it's literally putting the cards up on a cork board. And then we do a thing called a gold, which we call a Goldilocks, which is just a Greg Daniels word for a story document. But he calls it a Goldilocks for a reason, which is it's like how you tell the story of Goldilocks. You don't need the details for Goldilocks. Right. You don't say, like, this adorable young girl whose 34-year-old father and 36-year-old mother were arguing. You just say, you know, a girl goes to this house, and the door is open, and she sees whatever. You you know what I mean? No extraneous details, no jokes. It's just the story document.
2: It's just Mm -hmm. the story.
0: So we write that. Mike and, you know, the sort of senior producers go over... The Goldilocks make notes for the writer. Mm-hmm. When we have a lot of time, the way it works is the writer makes an outline, a fairly detailed outline, in final draft with slug lines. So it'd be like, you know, interior, city hall, Leslie in Tom's office, Leslie sits at her desk, and then then in parentheses, in this scene, Leslie tells Tom that he needs to get his stuff off of her computer. Mm-hmm.
1: You no. Know? And so no, so no jokes at this point, just the...
0: Well, if you have an idea for dialogue or jokes, you can put it in. Oh, okay. So th- this is much more fleshed out. So then that gets notes. And in theory, if we have time, the whole room goes over and pitches jokes for each scene.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, and if you're lucky and you have a lot of time and a lot of jokes, then a lot of writing is just kind of stringing the jokes together. That, unfortunately, almost never happens. Hmm. Then you go out on script and you're given anywhere from a worst-case scenario of three days or two and a half days, I think I had once, to a more realistic scenario of five or six days to write the script. You hand in your first draft, and then Mike, who's the showrunner, sort of outlines a rewrite of the draft mm-hmm. when it comes in, and then as a room, and then I usually run the room, and we will go through and you know punch up every joke, change scenes around if we need to. And then Mike comes in and and sort of consolidates all of the different options. And then we have our table draft. There's a table read. And then we get notes from the network. We make adjustments based on those notes. And then there's a shooting draft. When it's your episode, you're on the floor with the director. And we have something called a candy bag, which is where we put all the alts. Uh huh. So you have that with you. And also, you know, you come up with stuff on the fly and you give them alternate lines. We shoot with tape with, and it's a sort of cheap way we shoot and our lighting setups because we're a documentary aren't terrible, mm-hmm. which gives us the option of doing a large number of takes. And we have incredibly gifted improv comedians as actors.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So we usually do about seven or eight takes and we always do a fun run as our last take. And in the fun run, they can do whatever they want. Oh, yeah. And you kind of know how well your scene was written because if it was well written, then on the fun run, they're really not doing a lot. Mm-hmm. they're, like, kind of swapping out a joke. And if it's poorly written, they are just all over the place.
2: <laughs> okay.
0: And it's clear because it's like, if you wrote the scene well, then the intention of the scene, the scene moved and the intention was clear. Mm-hmm. And there's no need to sort of improvise around it. Yeah. And if you didn't, then they're just all over the place. Yeah. Find so interesting.
1: How often does the fun run make it into the the show?
0: They're incredibly funny. So, like, you know, probably between... I don't know. Uh, it, it does make it into the show. Every show has stuff from a fun run, but mm-hmm. you know, not every scene. Often the problem is like if there's a joke in the fun run, there's a chance that it's not a good joke for story. Ah. It just might be the funniest joke. You know, there are a lot of times where like you have to cut a joke because it might weaken the story mm. or or whatever. But I would say a lot of their stuff makes it in. I mean, they're they're fantastic. Amy Poehler. It's hard to beat Amy Poehler. You know. Yeah. And every now and then you'll see something on the floor. So like last year, and I have to change it, last year at the finale was this show called Little Sebastian. we had set up earlier in the season that there was a miniature horse named Little Sebastian, mm-hmm. who was like the champion of the town. Everyone loved Little Sebastian. Uh-huh. And in the finale, when we pitched it out, we thought it'd be really funny to start with like an exterior shot of City Hall with a flag at a half-mast, and then come inside, and it's like a funereal atmosphere. And then Leslie says something about how we've lost a dear, dear friend, And everyone is a little teary eyed, and then the funny reveal would be that it's this little horse. (laughs) Okay, which sounds great, and it pitches really well. But when we were shooting it, it was my episode, and we're on the floor, and we're shooting it, and I was like, "It's just, it's a bummer. It's just depressing." Like, you you go to the outside, you see the flag, you go to the inside, everyone's moping. So we did it. We did it as scripted. You always get it as scripted, and then we didn't. We just did a curveball, which was I had Leslie come in and say. Hey, do you guys remember Little Sebastian? And everyone's like, Yeah, Little Sebastian, woo! And then she goes, He died. (laughs) And they're like, what? And it's a horse. It's a little horse, so, like, you can get away with being calloused in a way, you know? Yeah. And it truncated that scene and it got rid of so much of that funereal feeling Uh Uh-huh had the same pipe and then you can still cut to the, the people who are the most devastated and they have a talking head or something where they're like, I can't believe Will Sebastian's said, but you've already gotten the comedy out of it as opposed mm. to, so like that's the kind of thing that is so satisfying. That's like, that's my, probably my proudest moment on the show <laughs> just because like you're on the floor and you've changed it and you've done something cool.
1: Very, very cool.
0: So, I mean, that being said, there are a ton of times where I've been like gotten it as scripted and then said like, you know, it would be awesome. Is if Leslie does the exact opposite of what she's scripted to do, and I'll, we'll do it, and then the scripted version is what makes it. I mm. mean, there's a reason usually that the scripted version is the correct version.
1: Yeah. Wow, that's, that's, that's neat stuff.
0: When we started, it was really interesting. So in season one, Greg and Mike did a very interesting thing, which I think is like a good thing for new shows to do, mm-hmm. which is they set out what they called, in it's gonna sound like super nerdy, dorky language, but, Vectors for each of the main characters. And they were the direction in which we wanted the character to go over the course of the season and the, and the show.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And it wasn't like arcs. It wasn't like these two characters will get together. It was like Leslie becomes slightly less naive. Mm. Mark becomes slightly less cynical. Anne becomes slightly more trusting. You know, whatever it was. And you would drop in these, you would, when we would pitch stories, we'd say it's on this vector and this vector. But it was really useful.
1: Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I, I imagine that that could even inform some of the stories. Um, like yeah. thinking about what do we need to make f- this person slightly less cynical.
0: Yes, exactly. Right. And it can give you story ideas. Or you can say, like, "That's is this right? Like, we're making her less naive. And this all of a sudden, in this episode, she's super naive. That doesn't make sense, you know, or whatever.
1: Mm-hmm. Very, very cool. Well, um, we're, we're I guess, getting... Pretty close to the end of the time here. Um, but just a, a few more things. Uh, so, you also wrote a movie, El Presidente? Yes,
0: I wrote a movie for Warner Brothers called El Presidente, which is like a buddy movie. It's about a president who has the political skill of Gerald Ford and the sexual appetites of Bill Clinton. Mm. And his very by the, you know, strictly by the book Secret Service agent. That there's like a plot against the life of the president. They want to try and kidnap him, and the two of them are. On a sort of chase across the country.
1: Mm, cool. And uh, so, so you sold that, and um, is it uh, is it in development?
0: It's in development at Warner Brothers, and hopefully, it'll be produced. But it's you know, it's a film, so who knows? Yeah, probably yeah. not.
1: After ten years.
0: And I did a pilot last year for NBC.
1: Mm-hmm. Cool. Good um, night. Well, that actually leads me to a couple of um, questions. Towards the end, we always ask breaking in tips, but right now. Um, people are dealing with the fact that uh, in the industry, there's been a shift. Five years ago, you would submit primarily spec scripts um, it, in trying to break in. And now it seems like everybody wants pilots. Um, and so everybody's wondering, well, what's the best way to attack a pilot? Um, and you you were there right from the beginning with, with Parks and Rec, and, and you saw what you know, what a successful show looked like, and you sold your own pilot. What what tips do you have for um, how you would set up a good pilot story?
0: Well, can I say, first of all, so they made my pilot, and before they picked it up, which they didn't, you know, to go to series, but before they make the decisions, showrunners meet with potential writers. Mm -hmm. So I had to read, so I did that. I did all the meetings and stuff, and I read, you know, 80 scripts from people. And I think... Personally, I think if you can write a good spec script, I know your agents are telling you not to do it, Mm -hmm. but like a pilot is really hard to write. And so like it's a shortcut to writing something good, I think, to write a good spec script. I think if you have a good spec script in you, it can't hurt to write it. Mm. And then if you also need to write a pilot, you should write a pilot. I disagree. I told agents that I wanted to read spec scripts in addition Mm. because the writer is dealing with so much less stuff. They're not setting up an entire world. They're not creating... There are too many variables in a pilot. It's too easy to get off the rails, I think. I yeah. really do. Well,
1: well, well. tell me then, so out of those 80 that you read, what makes a spec script stand out then?
0: Well, I think on a spec script, what makes it... And I also want to answer your question about the, uh, what makes a good pilot. Mm-hmm. But, but on a spec script, what I think really makes them stand out was story the ability to tell a compelling story so and for that it was establishing stakes early that is something very few people do a lot of people don't establish the stakes until the act one break Mm -hmm. so as a result you're floating through the act one and you don't know what the story is about
2: Mm.
0: on a single camera i think you should be establishing the stakes within the first three to five pages establishing what the story is and what the stakes of the story are Mm. you know so for instance if we don't do x then we're going to lose the bar If it were cheers, let's say, you know, whatever, that should be early. It shouldn't be at the act one break Mm -hmm. because I don't know what's going on by then. Yeah. But establishing stakes early. And then for me, I was looking for people who could write jokes in character, uh, character based jokes Mm -hmm. early, but you know, good jokes are important. But I do think story having solid act breaks, knowing the stakes of your story, knowing what your story is, resolving the story and having good act breaks. was the key thing? And I was, and it's very, that's not an easy thing to do. Mm. And the same thing goes for a pilot. I think pilots are really, really difficult to write. I've written two, so one of them got produced, and then I'd written one really early on when I was at Conan. I wrote a pilot that was really crappy.
2: Mm-hmm. So uh,
0: it's really important to know what your story is, to set up the stakes. I think it's important to make sure you're... When, in a pilot, it's important to make sure that there's some likability for your characters. I mean, I don't want to sound naive or like a network shell and say like that person's not likable and there's definitely a place for characters that are that are not likable Mm -hmm. or and there's also Archie Bunker who is not likable but super likable you know yeah there's a way to do that too but I think there's a tendency you don't want to crap on your main character too much because you want people to watch that character and that's not a note of like oh he's a doctor he should be a good doctor it's just like if he's kind of a schmuck to everyone Or he's done bad things. Like I read a pilot and like you find out in the first few pages that the backstory of the main character is he caused someone to be paralyzed Mm -hmm. just by playing a joke on them and he's unremorseful and you're just kind of like, well, this is a bad person. Mm -hmm. So I do think that that those things are important. Personally, when I was coming up with pilot ideas, the first set of ideas that I came up with were all crazy concept ideas with huge hooks. And then I thought, okay, even if this makes a good pilot, this isn't going to be a good show. Mm. And so I really set out the best to me. Comedy shows are shows like Cheers that's set in a bar. It's a corner bar. Yeah. And the office, that's just an office. Yeah. And so I sort of set out to find a normal world in which funny stories could happen. My pilot was about a family medical clinic that a family worked at. Mm-hmm. So it's like a kid, a son my age, you know, or younger, like 30 his mom and dad were both doctors and his grandfather was a doctor. And so my theory was like, everyone's been to the doctor and everyone has a family. So like stories are instantly relatable.
1: Well, that's a, that's an interesting point. I I, I just finished reading uh, Bill Rapkins writing the pilot. He's, he's got an ebook out. And, uh, one of the things he mentions is how one of the reasons pilots die is because they've got to set up so much that you can't get a story out. Um, yeah. and so if you can, um, if you can set it in a simpler setting, then you're not having to do as much work to set it up. And then you can actually pay more attention to the story.
0: Right. I mean, even even with that simple setup that I just told you, there was a ton to set up Mm -hmm. and I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. The other reason that pilots, I think is because one of the large reasons that you like a show is your familiarity with the show and you have no familiarity with the show before it begins. Mm. I mean, that just sounds like a truism, but it is true. So like, it takes six episodes to get to know that that character has that quirk. And so when that character does something that's, that's a character joke, it doesn't get a laugh at first because you don't know the character. Mm. And so I think there's a, there's also a bit of that. That's also the reason that super high concept pilots often get made because like they're instantly, there's an instant hook, you know, like Earl, my name is Earl had a great hook, but then they're stuck with that conceit and that I, I mean, I didn't watch it that much, so I'm in no way commenting on on whether it was good or not. But I can imagine that it was very difficult to write that show and know that every week you have to like figure out how to relate it back to that list. You know, they're, you're stuck with the conceit to a certain extent.
1: Hmm. Very, very cool. And uh, maybe just one general tip um, for breaking in some a new, brand new person break, wants, who wants to break into the industry. What what advice would you give them?
0: Uh, so. <laughs> I'm not going to give you one specific piece of advice, but I will say because oh, okay. cause I think there are different things. If you want to start working late night, I think that for instance, I think the, those are shows you can ap- apply to often. All of you need an agent, but you should just find out what you can apply to and apply to it. I mean,
2: mm-hmm. you
0: can just get hired. You, it's like you don't have to start an ap- apprenticeship. You know, you can just get hired. Wow. Like, that can happen. That being said, I'm not saying you, that's like winning the lottery. It's very lucky and it's great when that happens. But like, I think the important thing is like, keep, write, just do a ton of writing
2: mm-hmm.
0: and send your stuff out and get comments on it and send it to agents, I guess. I mean, I, my, I broke in through late night and I didn't have an agent. And so everything became easier because I had a job. Mm-hmm. And it's, there's this terrible catch 22 where you can't get an agent unless you have a job or it's very difficult to, you know, and you can't get a job unless you have an agent. And I lucked into a job that you didn't need an agent for. So then mm-hmm. the subsequent things were easier. Yeah. I think do do comedy if you want to do comedy, you know, like do improv and write stuff and make videos. I mean, the world is also changing. You can put hilarious stuff up on YouTube and become, and get discovered. Mm. And like, get a job writing just by doing that.
1: Wow. Yeah, good point. And have a lot of fun at it.
0: Um, I don't know. What do most people say? How do people break in?
1: I mean, there's 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 lots of different tips. I mean, a lot of people say don't focus on the agent at all. Um, that the writing, if it's good enough, will... will I mean, right, the, the agents up. will come calling when it's time.
2: I
0: believe that. That's probably true, yeah.
1: Yeah, because I think so, so many people are fixated on getting, getting an, an, agent, an agent, thinking that the agent is going to get them jobs, which, I mean, is, I mean if, you're, if you're really lucky, maybe that happens. But, I, I mean, my experience is that people get jobs uh, half of the time just through their own um, networking.
0: Yes, definitely. Most of the jobs I got were through networking, for sure. Yeah. I also think, like, Especially for comedy, doing it is just, it's important. You know, mm-hmm. networking, like all these people do UCB, for instance, and they get to know each other, and then funny people hire their friends who are funny. They hire other funny people, or they get seen, or do stand-up and get seen, and, and people are like, you know what, that guy's really funny, I'd love to put him in a show, or I wonder if he can write. You know, I mean, I think that's a real pathway.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I guess we've got to wrap it up here. Um, you've been so generous with your time, and uh, I really, really appreciate it, especially some great, very specific tips about um, about writing and comedy, and I think people are going to absolutely love it.
0: Uh, thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you so, so much. Everyone should watch Parks and Rec.
1: <laughs> great. And and check out that, uh, that hunting uh, episode. That was episode... 10 of season two? Oh,
0: yeah. Well, you should watch, everyone should watch all of it, but if you're going to watch one, season
1: two, (laughs) episode 10 is uh, Hunting Trip. Hunting Trip. Great. We will watch. And you know, actually, to tell you the truth, um, one of the reasons I even started this podcast in the first place is I love following specific writers. Um, I, I I had a few experiences like that where I really liked a show, and I thought, well, what else have, have these writers done? And I went to, to find other shows that, that that particular writer has done, and I found wait, it's no surprise. I like that show, too.
0: Yeah, the, have you ever seen a show called Foil's War? No. It's a British show. I think it's like kind of a like a parent generation show, but my wife and I love it, and it's a, it's like a detective show set in the south of England during World War II. It's, it's wonderful, and like we follow that writer like anything that writer does all these bbc shows we like we netflix them all because Hmm. we love that show so much
1: yeah well hey i mean people follow cast members but where do the stories come from
0: exactly but where do the stories come from exactly
1: Yeah. yeah cool well i won't take any more of your time um but thanks so much for for doing this and uh um i look forward to seeing more of your work to come
0: uh thank you so much it was really a pleasure talking to you
1: great okay thanks dan okay bye okay bye bye Hosted by Gray Jones, the TV Writer Podcast is brought to you by Script Magazine and Scriptmag.com, the leading source for scriptwriting information in print and on the web. And by Final Draft Scriptwriting Software, the entertainment industry standard for script writing worldwide.